In the passage from 2 Timothy uh, that was just read, Paul informs his young protege, his, uh, his beloved son in the faith, as he often refers to him, Timothy. He informs him that he's being poured out as a drink offering. That the time of his departure from this world has come. He's imprisoned. Um, he knows that his execution at the hand, at the hands of the Romans, um, awaits him. He knows that his death is imminent. He then writes the following: "I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith." And if you're anything like me, when you when you hear this athletic metaphor, finishing the race, you're tempted to Think of Paul as something like an Olympic athlete, somebody like Usain Bolt, finishing his 100 meters with a sleek uniform, shiny shoes, a big smile on his face, glistening muscles, arms raised triumphantly. But I think this is the wrong picture. I think if we could look upon Paul, we wouldn't see an Olympic athlete. We would see someone who looks a lot more like a World War II prison camp survivor, someone whose body is covered in scars, somebody who's known life's sorrows and life's pain, someone who has suffered deeply for the sake of the Gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23-27, through he offers what you might call a resume for his sufferings. There he informs us, that his life has been marked with great labors, numerous imprisonments, and countless beatings, often near death. At the hands of the Jews, he received five times the forty lashes less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and assumed dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He was in constant danger from Gentiles as well as his own people, the Jews. He suffered toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often going without food and cold and exposure, all for the sake of the gospel. Yes, Paul finished his race, but it was not without deep, deep suffering. And I find it unlikely that any of, you, any of you in this room have experienced this sort of bodily affliction. Maybe you have, um, but I do know that everyone in this room, to some degree at some point, has tasted the brokenness of this world. Everyone in this room has suffered. It's part of life in this world. With this many people gathered in one location, it's inevitable that Most, if not all of you, have lost a loved one. Most of you have probably lost a father or a mother. Many of you have lost a friend. Some of you have lost a spouse or a child. Many of you are lonely. Many of you feel inadequate. Many of you are worried. Many of you are anxious. Many of you have doubts. We've all suffered. As I said, suffering in this world, even for Christians, if not especially for Christians, is inevitable. Paul knew this very, very well. 
far better than I currently do in my short 25 years. And yet, we're told that Paul finished the race. He kept the faith. Which brings me to the question, how? How do you keep the faith amidst so much suffering and death? Before we can really address this question, we need to first talk about the nature of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1, gives us a definition. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Scripture makes clear that salvific faith is a gift from God, not something that we ourselves can muster up. But generic faith, that's something that we can, according to this definition, put in just about anything. For example, all of you in this room, just sitting in those pews, you've exercised some form of faith. You had enough faith in the makers of those pews, or maybe Advent's maintenance team, to be assured of the hope that when you sat down, you would not go crashing to the floor. And it looks like no one had that happen to them. Another illustration, I want you to picture for me a little girl, probably four or five years old, standing on the edge of her bed, Her father's facing her, his arms outstretched, ready to catch her as she jumps into his arms. Now for this girl to jump, she has to have some measure of faith in her father. She has to be assured of the hope that he's going to catch her. Although I, you know, I'm a youth minister, kids also sometimes just jump anyway, so, you know, who knows. But in theory, she has to have faith in her father in order to jump. And for her to have this faith, two things need to be necessary. There's two ingredients here. The first one, she has to believe that her father is trustworthy. She has to believe that her father cares for her, that her father loves her enough that if she takes flight, he's going to do all that he can to catch her. You can keep going, you're fine. (laughs) A second ingredient... This girl has to believe that her father is able to catch her. That he has the strength, the power to, when he attempts to catch her, actually be able to take her into his arms. Because we know if he's strong enough to catch her and yet isn't trustworthy, if this girl jumps, this father may just turn and decide, you know what, I'm going to let her hit the floor. And then if he's trustworthy but not able to catch her, not strong enough. I mean, I think that's a better father, but still not going to help her if she takes flight. She's still going to hit the floor. He needs to be both trustworthy and powerful, strong, able. Now, I don't recommend this for any of you parents here or the children, but for the sake of the illustration, let's say we put a blindfold on this little girl. She's still on the edge of the bed. Now she's got a blindfold. Her father, again, standing outstretched, calling for her to jump into his arms. Well, we've upped the stakes. We've made it a little riskier. She's blind. She doesn't know where she's going. And so what we need at this point, she needs a greater faith. She needs not to just be pretty sure he's trustworthy, but to know without a doubt, okay, my dad has my best interest in mind. She also needs to know, well, he's, you know, he's a little out of shape now. I don't know if he's going to actually be able to catch her. She needs to know, okay, no, my dad will catch me if she's actually going to jump with the blindfold on. What we see is when 
things get hard when obstacles are thrown our way, when we can't see the outcome, the stakes have been raised, the object of our faith, that which we're putting our faith in, has to be able to rise to the occasion if our faith is going to be sustained. You see, faith is only as resilient as its object is trustworthy and powerful. I'll say that again. Faith is only as resilient, only as lasting, only as enduring as its object is trustworthy and powerful. And herein lies the problem with putting your faith in anything in this world. There is nothing and no one in this world who is absolutely trustworthy. And there's nothing and no one in this world who's absolutely powerful. Which means that there is nothing and no one in this world that can get you through anything. That can offer sustaining hope. There will always be a breaking point. I think a great illustration for this is marriage. It's one of the greatest promises two people can make with one another. It's one of the greatest instances where one person is putting faith in another and that person is putting faith right back into you. And yet, if we look at divorce rates, we see that when the going gets hard, even these promises, this faith is breakable. And even if you happen to marry the most trustworthy, faithful human being on the planet, someone who would never dream of leaving you, the final line of those wedding vows still rings true until death do us part. There's still a breaking point. In the face of death, nothing in this world has the final say. If your faith is in anything in this world, death ultimately will overcome it. Which is why we need something not of this world. We need someone or something not in this world. Because if you put your faith in the things of this world, if you put your faith in riches, in people, in your health, in pleasures, you name it, you put your faith in those things, when death calls your name, or worse, when death calls the name of your spouse, or the name of your child, or your best friend, those things will not sustain you. They don't matter anymore. They won't offer comfort in the face of death. And so as I said, we need something. Paul had something. Faith in something or someone not of this world, but of a different world. We need someone or something that is both absolutely trustworthy and also so powerful that it can overcome every obstacle, even our great enemy, death. And the church throughout the ages has declared that only one such being exists, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is holy, divine, and holy man. The one who tasted the sting of death, but then on the third day conquered it. Now you may ask, is this Jesus trustworthy? Many of you probably have experienced things in life that may make you doubt this. You may even have been treated by the church in such a way that this doesn't seem possible, that this Jesus could be trustworthy. Paul had every reason to doubt. He experienced the same suffering, the same death, 
in this world that we have. And yet he kept the faith, and we wonder why. Why, Paul? How? In 2 Timothy, earlier on in the, this book that we've been studying the last few weeks, chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Paul knows Jesus. He knows the character of this God. He knows Him to be trustworthy. He writes in Philippians 2, verses 6-8, through 8, he says, Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you. Paul also writes in Romans 5.8 that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in rebellion, while we still had our backs to Him, while we stood in that crowd in Jerusalem and cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him, He died for us. For those of you in this room who doubt Christ's trustworthy trustworthiness, who doubt His care and affection and love for you. Paul wants you to know that Jesus, the ruler of all things, left everything and entered into the brokenness and sinfulness of this world for you. He wants you to know that Jesus suffered for you. That He was tried, He was tortured, and He was beaten. Isaiah tells us to the point that His form and appearance no longer even resembled that of, the, of a human being. For you. He was crucified. He spent six hours on that cross and finally died. For you. That you might know that there is nothing in this world, nothing you can do, that will stand between you and His eternal love. Yes, Jesus is trustworthy. Yes, He cares for you. So He's trustworthy, but is He powerful? We're told in John 1 that it's through Him all things were made. We see in the Gospels that at the sound of His voice, winds and waves are stilled. Just the utterance of His name causes His enemies to tremble. And on Good Friday, He did taste the sting of death, but on Easter morning, we know that He conquered death. That even death has to take a knee before Him. Nothing can thwart His purposes. Nothing can stop His plans. Yes, He is trustworthy and yes, he is powerful enough. He is able. So we have in this Jesus someone who is wholly trustworthy and incomparably powerful. We have one who offers freedom from the guilt and shame of our past, present, and future sins. One who has prepared for us a place. One who promises to complete the work that He has begun in us. And one who shall return to take us out of this broken world into our true home. Where every tear shall be wiped away. Where death and pain shall be no more.
He is the one who makes all things new. This is the one that Paul put his faith in. And it is faith in Him and Him alone that offers sustaining hope in this broken, dark, wicked world. Life in this world is hard. We often like to distract ourselves, whether it's with our phones or hobbies, activities, whatever. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's hard. The pain, the doubts, the fears, they still remain. But Scripture tells us that this is only our temporary residence. And we have, like Paul, been given the good news that Jesus Christ has overcome this world. And that He shall come again to right every single wrong and take us home to our eternal residence, our true home, His heavenly kingdom. Like Paul, we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep the faith through faith, through, keep the faith through suffering and death, not because our faith in and of itself is strong, not because we can muster up some strong belief, but because of who our faith is in. Namely, Jesus Christ, who has overcome death and shall deliver us into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.